Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheists Godcast. Today on the show we have part one of a two-part interview featuring Nebula and World Fantasy Award-winning author James Morrow. Today's discussion covers his most recent novels, Shambling Towards Hiroshima, The Philosopher's Apprentice, and The Last Witchfinder, as well as his upcoming project, Galapagos Regained. Enjoy the show. The Shambling Towards Hiroshima uh, represent a bit of a, a departure um, from your usual style. Well, uh, it it is a bit of a lark, I guess, compared to the two books that came before it, The Last Witchfinder and The Philosopher's Apprentice, which are pretty dense in ideas and full of sort of uh, high-flying rhetoric and and uh, and intellectual game playing, um, right? And shambling. Uh, I just I needed a break, so I kind of wrote it on a lark. Uh, the publisher more or less commissioned it. It does, however, harken back to uh, a very early book of mine called "This Is the Way the World Ends," which, like shambling, is an indictment of the. Uh, the fact of, of nuclear weapons uh, in the hands of mere mortals. But mostly I did it for the fun of being able to put Godzilla together with my tremendous affection for old uh, 1930s and 1940s universal black and white horror movies. I got the sense that there's a, a, an affection there, definitely. I Actually, uh, shambling towards Hiroshima took me into your neck of the woods, sort of. Uh, I was at uh, the University of Kansas. Uh, last month, picking up an award, it wow. received the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. So I wasn't too far from from Oklahoma. Oh, you missed out. I mean, I like Kansas and all. I, I kept thinking of the uh, you know the show, the Broadway show Oklahoma has that song about Kansas City. Everything's up to date <laughs> in Kansas City, which, if you think about it, is a kind of science fiction song. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you don't mind if I uh, if I uh, pull favorite quotes from any of these books, do you? Oh no, I'd be flattered. Okay, uh, one of the ones that, that uh, st- stuck out at me from Shambling is, uh, even as we speak, brilliant men contemplate the immolation of countless innocent victims through fire-breathing, city-stomping behemoths. <laughs> I-, I love that. It's, it can't, I mean, obviously you're, you're making a parallel, and, and in case anyone had missed it to that point. <laughs> it's a pretty obvious allegory uh, on the atomic bomb. And, of course, the people who made... The original Godzilla film were consciously crafting a pacifist, uh, polemical movie. Right. Even though it was low budget and even though it was a sensationalistic sci-fi thriller, at one level, they were they were deadly serious about um, trying to uh, to to get a a serious conversation going about what had happened to their country and how it must never happen again to any country. And. And you uh, you mentioned earlier that sometimes uh, fantasy can can get into the mind of of the reader and allow them to think seriously about these things in a way that like a policy paper or or nonfiction would would fail to do. Um, I I think so. I see a place for fiction writing, even though some people would say the novel is dead, the short story is dead. It's all been supplanted by by movies and video games and and the sort of all media all the time that we have through, mm. through the Internet and, and cable. Uh, but I still think fiction's the one form where you can really wrestle an idea to the ground. You can play out a thought experiment, if you will, uh, in all its, uh, all its permutations. 
Um, so that in something like Shanley towards Hiroshima, while there is clearly uh, a, a pretty dim view being taken of the military mindset, uh, some of the military characters are admirable. Uh, a certain begrudging uh, acknowledgement is made of the case for uh, at least the bombing of, of Hiroshima. I think mm. it's much harder to, cake, to make the case for, for Nagasaki. Right. Um, and when we, get, when we get into the whole atheist thing, um, I think uh, the problem is so complex that there are aspects of it that only a fiction writer can get, can get a glove on and then share with his readers, uh, as opposed to uh, an, an essay or, or, or a book. Absolutely. Um, you know, I meant, I meant actually to start with, um, hold on, it's Galapagos Regained. The new project, mm -hmm. the new project, which I assume you've been working on all day today until just now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I'm one of those lucky writers who gets to, to practice his craft full time. Uh, and the tentative title of my Darwin epic is Galapagos Regained. Uh, Darwin is a major minor character in it, rather the way Isaac Newton functions in The Last Witchfinder. I see it as a novel about the coming of the Darwinian worldview. Um, I see it as, I hope, the first good novel about Darwin. There have been four or five before me, and I think they're all pretty feeble. Hmm. Uh, the, only, the only potent use of Darwin in fiction that I know about is, a, is an obscure play by a guy named Crispin Whittell. It's called Darwin in Malibu. A very very funny play, imagining Darwin and Huxley and Wilberforce all getting together in the in the afterlife. Didn't I didn't care for the recent movie called Creation. Uh, you know I don't care for Irving Stone's novel about Darwin, etc. etc. What I'm trying to do uh, is go directly to the heart of the uh, the way that Darwin problematized the God hypothesis. I'm coming at that full bore. Um, I don't think that's ever been done, at least not in, in fictional form. And, uh, you know, that's that what keeps me going back to the, to the word processor every day, is, is I think that uh, I'm surprised by what I keep discovering about uh, how you can dramatize uh, what, what is arguably a refutation of the existence of God, that we're still we're still reverberating from, uh, you know, from what's, uh, what Daniel Dennett calls Darwin's dangerous idea. We haven't begun to come to terms with it, you know, but I'm convinced it has serious implications for, and, and, and entirely negative implications for Christian theology. Would, would you say it's, it's fair to say that a lot of your books have, they flow from a, a central conceit. You take a metaphor such as the death of God uh, or, uh, you know, the fire-breathing monster as a metaphor for the atomic age, you take that metaphor and you literalize it, you fantasize it, and you expound upon it for some narrative length. Yeah, it, it, is, it is the literalizing of metaphor, and uh, that's why my work is often uh, categorized as science fiction, for, for better or worse. <laughs> um, Which doesn't I'm, seem quite right to me. <laughs> you know, the, the world of science fiction has treated me pretty well. Uh, it's given me some awards and... Uh, delivered a, a captive audience to my to my doorstep at the same time of course it limits your readership because it's such a a label is a kind of a stigma mm. for many connoisseurs of fiction but you know that's their problem that's they uh 
you know, I think quality is where you find it. Um, but uh, the um, yeah, the the idea that um, you can, uh, as you say, you can you can literalize the abstract in fiction. Uh, you can you can put uh, uh, the rotting cadaver of of the supreme being on stage, and it <laughs> it doesn't take a whole lot of effort for it to then become about just sort of the the loss the loss of the Christian consensus. Right. This very bizarre age we're in, we're stuck between, uh, you know, uh, a faction that wants us to just look back to some presumed uh, wisdom, uh, supernatural wisdom that our ancestors were in possession of. And, and people want us to look ahead, like, like myself, and say, uh, no, we, we got that one wrong. Uh, humans got a lot of things right, love and friendship and science, but we got the whole metaphysical thing wrong. Let's start over. Uh, and in the in the Darwin novel, uh, the uh, the, the uh, metaphor is, uh, or the conceit really, is uh, the fact that it's a debate. And I, I imagine that uh, contemporaneous with Darwin and his colleagues, there's a bunch of uh, Rakels and and flaneurs and ne'er do wells uh, at Oxford University, uh, young men who are graduates of the school and who've bought a building adjacent to their to their alma mater and uh they have they call themselves the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society because they admire Shelley who they regard as as uh, their atheist hero yes. it's not clear if Shelley was an atheist in the way we mean that today but that's another yeah. discussion some of the poetry is indicative though isn't it yeah yeah no Shelley was a wild character and indeed he got booted out of Oxford for writing his piece called On the Necessity of, of Atheism, um, my, uh, my Percy Bysshe Shelley Society decides to uh, float a huge cash prize of 10,000 pounds. They will award this fortune to anybody who can settle the God question. They think there's been enough sort of theological and philosophical and scientific work done by now to, for us to know. Uh, for there to be a definitive argument as to whether God exists or, or does not exist. Um, and that contest becomes the plot of my novel. The, uh, the main character is one of the contestants, a woman named Chloe Bathurst, who hears about Darwin's theory. She's working uh, as a kind of a governess at Darwin's estate, not a governess who's in charge of his children, but a governor who's in charge of the live specimens he brought back hmm. from the Galapagos. bit of poetic license going on there. In fact, Darwin did not bring back giant tortoises or, or any marine iguanas, but in my novel he does. And Chloe thinks that if she can just parade these creatures in front of the judges of the Percy Bysshe Shelley Prize, uh, she'll prove that God doesn't exist and, and, she'll, and she'll get the gold. Hmm. Um, but Darwin won't cooperate, and the novel then becomes a kind of a grand adventure, a, a picaresque, a trip, uh, a trip across South America. She has to get to the Galapagos herself to acquire these illustrations. Um, anyway, so that's that's how my mind works. <laughs> that that is exciting. Uh, when's it going to come out? 
Well, I'm afraid it might not be till the year 2012. Uh-huh. Uh, I've still got one more chapter to write, and uh, then it has to go on the marketplace. It's a book we didn't want to sell it in embryonic form. My agent and myself, we decided, you know, better better to just make the thing the best novel I, I can and then get get the enthusiasm of the publisher behind it. Right but on. we know that there, there's some editors in New York who, who, who want to see it. And in, in England, England as well. In fact, we're going to England uh, next month, and I'll be doing research at Down House. Oh, excellent! Darwin's estate's yeah. now been open. It's been open to tourism and research on the campus of Oxford University, where there are many scenes from the novel. As I say, first you first you write the novel, and then you do the research. So <laughs> <laughs> we're off across the pond soon. Did you have to find some way to send yourself to the Florida Keys for the Philosopher's Apprentice? <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted to try to work that into the family budget, but couldn't manage it. <laughs> so I, fake, I faked it. Uh, there's even a bit of a disclaimer at the beginning where I said, this is a kind of fanciful island. You know, it's, it's not, it doesn't correspond to the actual ecology of any of the, of the Florida Keys, as far as I know. Right. Uh, that's, just, that's just sort of a convention of that particular novel. Um, but it is, you know, the novel is, is kind of an homage to the island of Dr. Moreau, right. which is a pretty fanciful place. I don't think there's, too, there's not too much accurate description by Wells of, of Dr. Moreau's habitat. I, uh, I had assumed that the, the central conceit of The Philosopher's Apprentice was something like the idea of the blank slate, a, a human being that, you know, as, as we now know, humans don't come out this way, but it was often, it was long thought that humans are, are born as blank slates and you can write upon them whatever ethics or knowledge you, you care to, to write upon their, their minds. Yes. Uh, in a, at one level, uh, it's a tribute to uh, a, great, a great blank slate uh, work, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. kind of my homage to her accomplishment. Um, what intrigued me was that if, if, if someone's mind were a blank slate, and if, in particular if their conscience was a tabula rasa to be writ upon by whatever morality you could, you could teach uh, a clone, um, that it would be so easy to go too far. Uh, the pitfall is mm-hmm. that you would end up programming too much morality uh, dump too too many ethical principles into this the the crucible of this person's mind, mm-hmm. and you would create a monster, not not the sort of brutal uh, murderer who is at the center of Mary Shelley's novel, but a moral monster uh, that is a creature who's too good, right. who is too ethical to function in this world. And um, absolutely hell bent on seeing to it that the meek inherit the earth as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Whether they want to or not, and whether whether the world approves or not, the meek are going to inherit the earth now. Yeah. So she she doesn't she doesn't understand. Lon does not does not understand. You're you're not really supposed to take the Sermon on the Mount that seriously. Hmm. Um, you know, doesn't she doesn't she understand that like the the teachings of Jesus of Jesus Christ have been an optional component of Christianity for many generations now. And, uh, but, but poor, uh, poor Londa just doesn't get with the program and, and, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. 
Um, I, I think I, I mentioned this to, to you earlier. Do you see that uh, the Kindle users can uh, highlight and, and tweet your, your stuff now that's on Kindle? Um, yeah, I noticed that. You had, you had posted some quotations from it. That'll be an interesting form of feedback. Very gratifying to, to, see, people, to see people sharing uh, my, my, my little epigram. Yeah, there's some eminently quotable bits, uh, well, in, in all these books, but um, it, it'll become more obvious from the Kindle books. Which which bits yeah. people are really being moved by? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check that out when I get a chance. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I loved about the, the Philosopher's Apprentice is the way you set it up up front with that quote from the uh, that was from the Egyptian the movie. The um, yeah the 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 film does provide uh, a kind of entree for me into the mind of my uh, of my hero. Um, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember. I should pull it. I should pull it off the, off the shelf. Uh, Mason, that's his name. <laughs> uh, and he, that, I actually knew a philosopher here at Penn State who was very influenced by by the Egyptian and by Sinoué's uh, 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 perambulations along the Nile, wondering about the mystery of it all. Why he asks why why. And I figured I'm going to steal that from the real world and and make that uh, who uh, who Mason is, who Mason Ambrose is, and and uh, you know I I think um, and then of course I had because I because I love old movies so much I had fun uh, making fun of the movie but also allowing it to to appear uh, th- throughout the book you know uh, as uh, just kind of it binds a lot of the book together. Indeed, I, I love the the mentality there that you put in in uh, the protagonist that uh, bow before Isis and Horus and Thoth, perhaps even believe in them, but give them no sovereignty over your thoughts. It, that that really that really struck a chord with me. That that was uh, you know original. That was one of your your lines describing um, how Mason was going to work. I, I I like that. That's nice to hear that. <laughs> That's pretty good, Jim. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's hearing, good stuff. Hearing you, hearing yes. you recite it, yeah. And uh, I was, I was pleased when I, when I framed that that thought and and clutched those two sentences together. Uh, <laughs> you know, bow down before the gods. You could even believe it. You can even believe in them, but but be careful. You know, they're going to take over your mind if you're not if you're not careful. Which is precisely uh, what happens with the uh, the Sermon on the Mount later on in the book. It's takes over. Uh. Ah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You're a, you're a good critic. <laughs> yeah, it's not my day job. <laughs> I, I I love the the idea of the the onto generator. It's it's such a, a, a fun machine and it's it's put to uh, to such uses uh, throughout the book. Um, you you create these these factions like like you mentioned earlier this this these people that want to move forward into uh, a more of a humanist ethic, and and these uh, regressives who uh, you called uh, corporate Christie, can can mm-hmm. can you explain a bit about uh, <laughs> what what they're on? What is corporate Christie? <laughs> well, I uh, I think of uh, corporate Christie as kind of where we've ended up on these shores in this in this republic um it's been astonishing in my lifetime to see the uh the the theocratic uh mindset take over so much of the political sphere uh, mm. you know we have uh you know uh 
the George Bush administration, which almost seemed to be, you know, kind of evangelical Christian government by by other means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got uh, the demagoguery of Ann Coulter and Glenn Beck um, and uh, and Sarah Palin. Uh, you know, we've got now what amounts to uh, a religious test for office. You know, the the one kind of president we're never going to have is anybody who would even begin to suggest that God might simply be a hypothesis and not a fact. Um, so, true, true. you know, and, I, and, I, and it's, it's a terrible conjunction because, of course, uh, the, the rogues gallery I've just identified, and there are many, many others uh, in that particular inverse pantheon, um, you know, they're not really remotely curious about the sort of radical ethics that Jesus demanded of his followers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've figured out a way to make Jesus make them feel good about the things they hate. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and yet you can't, and there's no answering it. I guess that's my whole issue with Revelation. It, it stops the conversation. Um you know, there's nothing more really to say once you know God's opinion about something. I mean, I think it's arrogant in the extreme to take that position, but how common it's become. It's in the, it's in the, the marketplace of political discourse in a way that would have been unimaginable 20 years ago, and it frightens the hell out of me. I have mm. no idea where it's going. It, it should frighten the hell out of you. We've seen uh, what yeah. happens when church and state uh, conjoin and uh, power is, is put into the hands of priests, which is a good segue to uh, The Last Witch Finder. Well, that's another example of what we've been discussing, Damien, uh, how I think a novel lets you construct a thought experiment and wrestle wrestle all of the all of the ideas that precipitate out of the experiment wrestle them to the ground, give them their due. Uh, while, while the book does not make a case for hunting witches, it, it, tries to, it tries to clarify why somebody caught up in that universe would, ex, would accept its assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I find that when I write a novel, I make a lot of discoveries about the material I'm interested in, and it surprises me. You know, I, I think writing a novel is a little bit like jumping on a off a railroad bridge onto a freight train. You don't know where you're going to, you don't know where you're going to get up. I, to, to end up, uh, I was surprised that, that, that the world of, of the Renaissance in which, which was thought to be driven by demons, that was the only way people could account for uh, the, the dynamic qualities of nature, all the processes of weather and disease, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the movement of, of, uh, of the heavenly spheres, um, that, that the, the demonology underlying that was not simply superstition. It was not people coming up with wrong answers. It was an entire, an entire universe. Some people managed to think their way out of that universe. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not excusing the witch persecutors. But there was a long period where no one perceived any necessary incompatibility between demonology and the emerging experimental science of, of Isaac Newton. Right. Um, 
And in, in fact, Newton himself didn't necessarily uh, uh, perceive an incompatibility. He, he, he did believe that demons were not the case. He thought they were, quote, desires of the mind, that is, fantasies. But he was certainly one of the most pious men who ever lived. Uh, there's no question that he believed in God. Yeah. But um, he was an Aryan heretic, though, and definitely going but, to but hell. But he was a, he was a, he was a heretic, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I'll give him I'll give him credit for that. Uh, but he was by no means an Enlightenment figure in the sense of Benjamin Franklin, who's right. the other major historical character who who comes on stage in the in the last Witchfinder. Um, but it fascinated me that that. For example, many members of the Royal Society assumed that, that witches might well be the case. Uh, most famously, Robert Boyle. We all had to study Boyle's Law in mm-hmm. our high school chemistry classes. Um, and uh, the fact that there was a kind of pseudoscience involved in the tests for whether or not one had compacted with the devil. Oh, yes. So it's, it, it, it was not that people were crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of you, you must prick any excrescence you find on the skin of the suspected witch, mm-hmm. and it will fail to bleed, um, and hence the, hence the expression cold as a witch's tit. Mm-hmm. These excrescences were thought to be the nipples where, whereby the, the witch suckled her, her familiar, a kind of imp given to her by the devil. Uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, Swimming the witch had um, a pseudo-scientific rationale behind it. Utterly fascinates me. Uh, you know, if the witch, if the witch uh, sinks, uh, the alleged witch, that she's innocent <laughs> right. because she's not uh, she's not being rejected by pure water, the medium of baptism. Of course, she might drown. Poor dear. Um, Which might be for the, the best. The, uh, <laughs> so well. But what I think we have to realize in terms of uh, the critique that you and I would make of, of religion is that this, this era of persecuting witches was not an interval of hysteria. This wasn't crazy people engaged in manifestly irrational acts. It was an entire worldview, and it was, in its own way, very good theology. Right. Which is why it lasted for almost 300 years. I mean, that, that doesn't sound like hysteria to me. No. Uh, that simply sounds like what it was. People noticing things that are right there in Scripture that invite us to believe in witches, to assume that demons are the case, and to persecute and burn the agents of Lucifer. It's all there in Scripture. Right. And you, you also pointed out that it's not only in Scripture— but it's it's in whole treatises by both Protestant and Catholic theologians going on about how to identify and and purge these instruments of Satan from your midst. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some some people would argue that the the Protestant Reformation was a step forward and that it was some kind of uh, uh, blow on in favor of of uh, intellectual freedom. Uh, you know, commensurate with the Enlightenment to come. I, I think it was actually nothing of the kind. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was just trading one set of very bad ideas for another set of very bad ideas. And for a while, it seemed as if the Protestants and the Catholics were in competition to see who could persecute the most witches and the most Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty shameful. And uh, 
does not deserve uh, the Protestant Reformation does not begin to deserve comparison with the coming of the age of reason, the arrival of of the scientific worldview. Uh, you know, it, it's sometimes said that, uh, that that what the Islamic world lacks uh, is um, a, a kind of enlightenment strand. I can't really speak to that, but I do know, I disagree with people who say, oh, the problem is that Islam never went through ref- the Reformation. I'd be much more on board with someone who said the, the uh, Islam has yet to go through an enlightenment that is... Um, a way to uh, maybe not take itself so seriously, to become right. a little more deistic about it all, uh, and and a little more modest <laughs> about uh, when it comes to claiming to know exactly how the universe works. I suppose that uh, you could make the argument that if it wasn't for the Reformation, we wouldn't have seen the growth of, of sects such as the the Quakers, and the Unitarians who allowed for a certain uh, degree of freedom of thought. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's a good argument. I'm no historian, but I, I imagine that's along the lines of how the argument goes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Um, uh, you know, that, that said, um, it, it also led to some very ugly theology. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of my Quaker friends, and I think highly of, of Unitarians. Uh, but uh, you know the the, uh, the the Catholic Church, you know, at least worried about the, uh, the the really dark side of God and even the dark side of Jesus, and and they 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 tried to re- rehabilitate those two characters in a way that Protestantism just ran with the dark side of God and the dark side of Jesus, saying yes, um, we're depraved, we're worthless, uh, you know. Please, Jesus, please, Jesus, do, do anything you want with those, except for myself, with, with those non-believers. Um, um, you know, they, they, they deserve eternal damnation. Um, and, uh, in fact, it's, it was all destined at the beginning of time. But, yes, I, I, I rarely um, mount a critique of, of Quakers. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I love one of, the, one of the central themes in The Last Witchfinder is this idea of an argumentum grand, a, a, refutation, a, a, a knockdown refutation of witchfinding as, as a practice. Yeah. Um, I, I love that as a, as a project, and I suppose that that's a theme that you, you return to in the book that you're working on now, this idea of a grand argument. Yes, precisely. Um, and, uh, I mean, in the case of The Last Witchfinder, uh, after after many adventures, uh, my heroine Janet does find uh, something that might be called a, a, an argumentum grand, uh, uh, proving that demons are not the case. And of course, it has to do with science. It has to do with the notion, in particular, that the universe is all one thing, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. It isn't called universal gravitation for nothing. The world is of a piece. It's not split down the middle as Descartes would have it. It's not split down the middle between dead matter on one side and and uh, spiritual entities on the other, with therefore a need for that dead matter to be moved by the spiritual entities, some of whom might very well be, be wicked spirits. Um, my, my heroine Chloe believes that in Darwinism you have a definitive uh, rebuttal to the God hypothesis. And... Um, I, I'm not going to tell you whether she's successful or not. In fact, I'm not quite sure if she is, because I haven't written the last chapter yet. You're still on the train. 
<laughs> yep, yep, still on, still on the train. You know, I, I don't want it. I don't want there to be a simplistic happy ending, or at least happy from the secular point of view, where wherein she triumphs. You know, I suspect uh, that's not how this this great God contest is going to play out. Um, but during the course of the book, the pieces of the argument are discussed at some length by by my heroine Chloe and her and her friends who are on this wild adventure going down the Amazon in in steam packets to try to get to the Galapagos Island and bring the animals back <laughs> to, to England so they can illustrate the theory of natural selection. Pieces like, well, uh, it's all very well to say the story of the Garden of Eden is, uh, is really just a kind of metaphor, uh, but that's, that's not how, <laughs> that's not how uh, Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Kierkegaard read the story of the Garden of Eden. For them, it was it was an historical event. It was as factual as the as the Battle of Hastings. Um, and if indeed the uh, uh, there there was no primal fall, if if uh, there was no need to redeem the seminal sin of of Adam, and I guess I'm using seminal in both senses of the word, um, then uh, we. Then why then why an incarnation? Jesus came to to, to as it were uh, re- redeem the fall that Adam perpetrated <laughs> in the Garden of Eden. If that never happened, there, there's really no theological need for Jesus. I've heard a lot of uh, Southern Baptist preachers make precisely the argument that you just made. <laughs> ah, oh, I'm gratified to do that. Um, Sorry for that, the company. That's, there. I guess one of the reasons they they hate Darwin. And you know, then there's the more just sort of blunt notion. That if the Genesis account of creation uh, simply doesn't hold water, it doesn't seem to be about the world that we inhabit. It seems to be about some other world, like something a science fiction writer might give us. Then where doesn't that sort of bring a, a kind of universal acid in touch with the Bible? And doesn't that universal acid start to eat through not only the book of Genesis, but maybe every single page? Where do, where do we stop? Where do we stop? Certainly, I, I know a lot of uh, unbelievers who who started down that path, and that's that's how they got to be where they are because of that very uh, process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, others uh, others well, came through totally different routes, philosophical, historical, or, other other routes. Yeah. Good, good for them. A- anything else about the the last Witchfinder? Uh, fantastic book. I um. I can always tell when you're about to kill off somebody uh, because I really, really like them. I'm like, oh, this is such a great character. And uh, and naturally, she's going to – I'm talking, of course, about um, toward the beginning of the book. Oh, Aunt uh, Isabel. Yeah, it was necessary for her to die to get the whole thing started. Um, I, uh, I was just surprised in writing the book how the actual uh, events of history kind of played into my hand. Oh. Almost as if the novel was asking to be written. Well, that's about as mystical a statement as you'll ever get from James Morrow. <laughs> but uh, you know, I just uh, it, it it was astonishing to me that um, you know, the the uh, the meeting between Benjamin Franklin and Isaac Newton that occurs um, a little bit after the midpoint of the book um, almost happened in the real world. In, in uh, I think it was 1725, the young Benjamin Franklin was in London looking to buy printing equipment, and he had a kind of letter of introduction 
to the great Isaac Newton, who was hoping they would get together and discuss electricity. Uh, but of course, Newton, who's like 84 at this point, does not want an audience, <laughs> does not want to hear from this cheeky kid mm-hmm. from, from Philadelphia. But I decided, okay, let, let me have them actually meet. And what better way to show that uh, uh, Newton, the Renaissance man, uh, the pious Renaissance man, and, and Benjamin Franklin, the avatar of, of the Enlightenment, not only are coming from two different continents and, and two different generations, but really from two different universes, two different me- mental universes. Mm. Um, Newton's still in that world where demons might be the case, uh, where, where, where God is orchestrating all events, and, and, uh, and, and Newton is his prophet, and of course, uh, uh, the irrepressible Franklin, a fundamentally secular perspective, interested in the ministry of Jesus primarily for ethical tenets, uh, mm-hmm. is, on, is on paper, is on record as saying that he, that he uh, doubts the divinity of Jesus. Um, and, and so he, he personifies the Enlightenment in my novel. It turned out that the town of Haverhill was actually attacked by, by Indians at pretty much the exact moment I needed for that to happen in my, in my plot. Huh. And um, the very last witch trial on these shores uh, was uh, written up by Benjamin Franklin in his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Now, in fact, it probably never happened. It was one of Franklin's hoaxes. Um, he has it occurring in, in uh, Mount Holly, New Jersey. I move it across the river to Philadelphia. Uh, I decided to take Franklin at his word because that, you know, that, that clearly uh, people are still worried about witches as late as, uh, you know, I guess it's about uh, 1736 that he's writing that he's writing that hoax. And I said, "Great, I will. I will use that too." I think you mentioned that in the preface that you know you'd literalize that or not or de yeah. de fictionalize that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, indeed. Speaking of of this historical um, elements, uh, I'm guessing you did an incredible amount of research, not just into the actual uh, the turning points of history, but also into the language. I mean, you really worked hard to to present. Uh, a language with the with the uh, idiomatic uh, expressions used by by native speakers back then, you know, God's teeth or just steeth or truth. Yeah. How how did you do that? Was that uh, well? It was very important to me to try to create uh, the the right, the, the correct um, linguistic world, or at least a simulacrum of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not simply the uh, an intellectual world and historical world that was that was factual. Um, I hope I brought it off. Uh, there, there are moments when I, I wince and think oh, I went a little too far in all of the, with all of those archaic idioms, all of those period locutions. Um, but how did I, how did I research it? Uh, I went through John Barth's uh, novel set in the same era, The Sotweed Factor, and stole a lot of, <laughs> a lot of locutions from him. I read a lot of restoration drama and ah. tried to decide, you know, what. Uh, you know, we can uh, we can infer uh, from from primary documents such as such as um, what the what the restoration playwrights offer us. Um, we can infer how people of different classes spoke. Um, we know. Uh, so I looked at I looked at some 
letters at the time. I read Franklin's autobiography, a lot of just contemporaneous material, and 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 would jot down uh, phrases that that particularly appealed to me, uh, that that I found sort of endearing. Like I would make bold to tell you that I love expressions like that that have dropped out of dropped out of English usage. Yeah, we've got to bring back swiving. <laughs> yes. I, I must admit I got that from, from Barth. The language is very much in, in transition. There were still, of course, a lot of uh, Elizabethanisms, Shakespeareanisms hanging around as, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the and thou had not disappeared. So um, it, it was a challenge. The book took, oh, about four years to write, and then because we had a little difficulty selling it, it ran into, into some political problems with the, the publisher who'd signed up to do it. Uh, another three years managed to go by, which, you know, I, I had the last laugh. That was all to the good because I kept noodling with it, and, and I think I made it better. I, I, uh, I suppose there's such a thing as doing too much rewriting and fixing things that are not broken, but the book was so ambitious, I'm glad I had what was really amounted to about six years of composition time. Um, broken up a bit. I, I got a good start on The Philosopher's Apprentice in there while we were busily trying to sell the Witchfinder to a New York house. So, uh, one, one last question about the last Witchfinder. Um, sure. The idea of books uh, becoming conscious and writing other books, or having <laughs> uh, long-standing grudges with other books, uh, <laughs> where did that come from? That is fantastic, in every sense. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, I was very aware that if you're going to write a book celebrating the Enlightenment, you're going uh, you're gonna to get some philosophers lining up to, to critique it, saying, oh, come on, the Enlightenment in its own way was just another ideology. Uh, it, was, it was even its own sort of religion, mind you. Uh, and Exhibit A in this uh, critique of the Enlightenment, of course, is the French Revolution. Ah, see what happens if you if you uh, take reason too seriously. It's as bad mm-hmm. as taking taking revelation too seriously. Okay, it's not it's not an argument I, I like. I think it's specious, but I wanted to give it its due. And I figured, okay, I need for me the author to um, to evince some uh, perspective on the problem, so it doesn't seem like I'm just grinding a, an axe on behalf of an ideology that appears to me. I want to I want to bring as many voices as possible into the mix because I I don't think it's the novelist's job to set people straight about how the world works. I don't know how the world works. Uh I you know I think it's our job to to try to astonish people and make them think thoughts they've never had before and and to give credence to lots lots of different ways of being in the world. Um my first thought was okay, I'll have Aunt Isabel who you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, be well, maybe a bit of a mystic, a bit of a seer. She has written a, um, a uh, you know, like a long, crazy epic poem that that foresees, that anticipates the French Revolution, and that's how I'll demonstrate that I'm aware of the French Revolution, and that yes, one anybody who champions the Enlightenment has to come to terms with. with that terrible time and, mm-hmm. and and the possibility that it argues against uh, uh, secularism as 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 um, vital uh, to to human survival as I think it is. But I didn't like that idea. I mean, come on, Jim, you're you're 
having somebody indulge in engage in a in a quasi mystical act of of writing accurately about the future that's not you so i decided to do something even crazier and more <laughs> mystical and more metaphysical uh and i made the last witch finder a book told by a book that's so off the wall that it doesn't seem it's it, for me it's obvious it's it's ironically or paradoxically does not contradict the message of the book which is that we have to, you know, we have to ruthlessly critique revelation and we, and we have to ask unfriendly questions of clerics um, doesn't contradict that at all, I, I believe. But it enabled me to have this perspective. So at one point, the Principia Mathematica, the, this book who is writing the book, this conscious tome of Isaac Newton's that has in fact produced this thing called The Last Witchfinder, uh, the Principia inhabits the uh, the mind of a of a French curé, a priest who's about to be guillotined in the Place de la Révolution during the French Revolution at the height of the Terror, and 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 so that's that's how I brought that in. And of course, throughout the book, the Principia leaps forward in time, uh, goes to Salem as it as it presently functions as a kind of Disney world uh, <laughs> of, of, uh, of, of the witch persecution era. And, uh, you know, they've become the Halloween capital of the world. Uh, Salem has, and, and I had great fun satirizing, satirizing that. It was, it was a good time. I, I, it, was a, it was a great device which allowed you to comment on, on modernity from, from our current perspective while maintaining what is essentially an historical novel. Yeah, that that was that was my goal. Uh, when we were having trouble selling the book, one potential agent said to me, uh, "You know, Jim, if you took out this framing device, if you removed this Principia Mathematica narrator, I could maybe sell this as a straight historical novel." And I, I had to give that some consideration because the book was going begging for a while. Hmm. But I'm glad I did not <laughs> follow that route. And eventually, I found a an agent who who understood the book perfectly and knew why that was essential to my uh, to my accomplishment. I, I I do find that um, much much of modern fiction is somewhat insulting to the reader. They expect that you know if if you're going to read an historical novel, it's going to be strictly just what you're expecting to read. It's going to be it's going to fit in a certain framework. Uh, I, I think readers are intelligent enough to enjoy something like The Last Witchfinder as on several levels as an historical novel as a meta narrative about uh, an ongoing cultural struggle. Uh, you don't need to, you know, to dumb it down for them, or at least not not all of them. Not even the ones in Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I have many intelligent readers in in Oklahoma. Uh, the the uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's a it's a trade off. Um, you know, I uh, I know that many people pick up my books and and put them aside after a few chapters. They they say this is this stuff is too dense. Um, mm. You know, I'm not losing myself in this because there's a, uh, you know, let's face it, Jim Morrow, there's, there's, there's a kind of self-conscious cleverness about a lot of what I do that is not everyone's cup of tea. Uh. Um, but, you know, I know More's I, the pity I like for them. the books that I would find entertaining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More's the pity for them. If they can't enjoy a, a, an intelligent, a thoughtful book with, with you know, with cleverness built in and, and difficult uh, themes, then, you know, there's plenty of pulp on the shelves. It's <laughs> yeah, in, in, indeed. You you know you can read uh, you know the Da Vinci Code or something if you really 
have a great desire to impoverish your mind. There's lots of stuff out there that'll do that for you. you know? Okay, that's it for this week. Please come back next week for the conclusion of this interview. If you would like to engage in a discussion of the ideas presented on the show, please visit our blog at blog.oklahomaatheists.com. Questions and nasty feedback may be sent directly to me at podcast at oklahomaatheist.com. This podcast is a production of the Oklahoma Atheist, an organization dedicated to developing a community of like-minded individuals who share the ideas of free and critical thinking and as opposed to the uncritical acceptance of faith-based ideas and norms. Our activities include dinner meetups, potlucks, family outings, debates, speeches, book clubs, volunteer opportunities, and political events and protests. We welcome all who share the ideals of critical thinking and who reject religious dogma. In addition to cultivating the community, we wish to contribute and put a face with all positive things non-believers and people with a secular viewpoint are doing in the world. If you'd like to know more, please visit us online at www.oklahomaatheist.com.